Welcome to Rights Up, Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. This episode is part of a special series supported by the British Academy on human rights and the sustainable development goals. Today I'm talking to Megan Campbell, a lecturer in law at the University of Birmingham and the deputy director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub. In September 2015, the UN adopted the Sustainable Development Goals to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all people. The Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, have made an overt commitment to human rights as fundamental to the international development agenda. SDG goal number one is to end poverty in all its forms everywhere, and the targets specifically state that poverty must be eliminated for all men, women, and children. But poverty affects these groups differently, and the causes of poverty for men, women, and children also differ. Empirical evidence tells us that women disproportionately live in poverty. The reasons are complex, but discrimination against women in education, employment opportunities, monetary compensation, and household roles certainly plays a part. When women are not equal players in society, they face greater economic marginalization. Living in poverty also makes it harder for individuals of any gender to access their human rights. In short, poverty can trap people, especially women, in cycles of economic hardship and also human rights violations. SDG goal number five is to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. But these goals don't make the explicit link between gender and poverty. And of the nine core UN human rights treaties, none of them establish obligations related to the gendered nature of poverty. But the fact that women are disproportionately affected by poverty makes it a key development and human rights issue. So how do we tackle it when it seems to be missing from both development agendas and human rights frameworks? I'm here with Megan Campbell, who's joining me via Skype. She has just recently written a book on women and poverty, so she's going to help us understand the issue a little bit better. Thanks for talking with me, Megan. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I talked a little bit about this in the introduction, but what's the link between poverty and gender? So we've moved away from thinking of poverty as just a lack of economic resources. And we now understand that poverty also includes the lack of resources coupled with powerlessness, vulnerability, shame, and exclusion. And then the next step is to try to understand how the causes of poverty impact or influence our understanding about what we should do to try to solve poverty. And that obviously is a really big challenge because the causes of poverty are really complex, but it is increasingly clear that women are disproportionately and it's because of these gender power imbalances. And we can see this manifest in lots of different ways. Um, Women's unequal pay, the devaluation of care work, both in and outside of the home, the exclusion of the type of work that women traditionally perform from labor laws and labor protections, the failure to recognize non-financial contributions in divorce proceedings, even sexual violence and sexual harassment. So it's really clear that gender discrimination plays a pivotal role in condemning women to lives of poverty. And there's a real danger in ignoring the role of gender because it can exasperate our efforts to alleviate poverty. 
So for instance, social benefit programs can deposit the funds only in one bank account, and that often perpetuates women's economic dependence on men. But if we're sensitive to the role of gender, our poverty alleviation programs can break cycles of powerlessness and vulnerability for women who live in poverty. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals aim to eliminate poverty and also empower women and girls. But in your view, do they treat gender and poverty in a cross-cutting way? So do the SDGs treat these issues as interrelated the way that you just described them? Um, it's difficult to say. The potential is there in the SDGs for them to be taking gender and poverty as an interrelated uh, phenomenon. The SDG 1 on eliminating poverty talks about eliminating poverty for women. And SDG 5 on gender equality obviously has a lot of um, labor protections, actually reproductive health rights. But as a bit, they're not quite maybe as integrated as um, a human rights lawyer would like them to be. There still might be some gaps in our thinking as poverty. When you look at at least the last iteration of the Sustainable Development Goals, the Millennium Development Goals, they talked about ending extreme poverty. And they often talked about poverty in very gender neutral terms, not simply just about men, but not really emphasizing the gendered nature. And the gender equality goals didn't really always talk about poverty. So they're still kind of seen as siloed. And there's a worry or concern that the same pattern repeat itself in the efforts to implement SDGs over the next now, um, what it would be, 13, 13 years. So what role do human rights play in combating women's poverty? So this is interesting because historically, poverty has been seen as kind of a personal moral failing. You're lazy, you're just not a very good person, so you're poor, and that's that's kind of your punishment for some other moral failings. And the response of, to this sort of understanding of poverty then has been either charity, like out of the goodness of my heart, I will help you, or political will, or even sometimes development goals. But the problem with that approach, charity, political largesse, or development, is that it can shift with political winds. With that shift, it can be withdrawn or it can be modified. And that obviously then leaves the women and men who live in poverty exceptionally vulnerable. Human rights, on the other hand, shift the understanding of women in poverty either as tragic victims, um, to see them as active and empowered rights holders. They're not just subjects of charity, but they are people who claim their rights, their rights to live in dignity, their rights to live equally, their rights to live a life that's secure, and hold the government to account for any laws or policies that impact on their human rights. There are two further reasons for why human rights law should have something to say about women's poverty. The first is that law has had an active role in constructing women's poverty. The World Bank in 2018 just found, quite depressingly, that 2.7 billion women are legally restricted from the same choice of job as men. So if the law has a role in constructing women's poverty, then the law should also have a role in dismantling those structures and improving women's poverty. And the second reason is that um, poverty negatively impacts women's ability to enjoy their human rights. The evidence is that girls in poverty are less likely to attend school less likely to enjoy the right to education. And if human rights really are for everyone, not just the rich, not just the entitled, then we have to take very seriously and think very carefully about how women in poverty both experience and enjoy their human rights. 
What international instruments exist to protect women's rights, and do they deal with poverty? This is an interesting question because it brings up some new thinking. So traditionally, international human rights law response to poverty has been through economic, social, and cultural rights. So this is your right to food, housing, water. And these are seen as a primary vehicle with which human rights should tackle poverty. But understanding that prominent role of gender and gender power relationships for women's poverty opens up some new thinking and new legal tools. And the central one is the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is shortened to CEDAW. So CEDAW is actually a really fascinating treaty because it requires states to achieve gender equality in broad areas of life, civil, political, economic, social, and cultural. And this is quite unique. It requires states to address negative cultural attitudes that are based on the inferiority of women and the superiority of men. And given that those cultural attitudes and stereotypes play such a prominent role in women's poverty, this treaty actually offers some really exciting avenues for using human rights to address gender-based poverty. But what's quite surprising about CEDAW, given just how prominent women's poverty is, how disproportionate it is, is that this sort of the landmark treaty on women's rights makes no mention to poverty in the substantive text. Okay, so what can be done about that gap? Although there is this gap in CEDAW about and the fact that it doesn't mention poverty, it doesn't mean that we should write it off um, as a potential mechanism for using human rights to address gender-based poverty. And there are two options with which we can overcome that gap. The first one isn't really a, that much of a viable option. The simple one would be like, like in domestic situations, if there's something missing in the law, we write a new law to cover that gap. That doesn't quite work the same in the international level because we need all the states to have the political will to come together to draft this treaty, to ratify this treaty, and that takes an exorbitant amount of time. And in that time, there will be women living in poverty whose rights are being violated, who have no ability to access any type of mechanism to say that this is, this is wrong. So the more viable or realistic option is an interpretation of the treaty. And this has a lot of potential. Human rights are not frozen politics. They are meant to be evolutionary and respond to changes. And now one of those changes has been that we understand that there are links between poverty, gender inequality, and human rights. So the advantage of the interpretation route is that it is responsive to humans of realities, and it's a more fast-tracked international solution. Why not just start over, you know, write a new convention that addresses poverty? It's actually quite difficult to create a new treaty or an optional protocol that would address gender-based poverty. Some of the other human rights treaties, such as the Convention on the Rights of the Child, does have a optional protocol on substantive issues. The problem obviously with gender-based poverty is that it is a political issue. It's very time consuming. It takes a lot of political will. It takes a lot essentially of time and resources, human financial to make that come together. And that could be quite is long and time consuming. Another maybe more substantive or reason would be that CEDAW is really trying to position itself as the landmark treaty about women's rights. It's trying to be comprehensive, coherent to address every issue that um, impacts women's right to be equal. 
So an interpretation that brings in such a massive source of inequality keeps everything kind of under that one umbrella of SIDA rather than fracturing women's human rights among different sources. And there is one and it is going to be multifaceted and fascinating and a prism, but it's going to all be under one big umbrella. How has this issue of women's poverty made its way into human rights? So poverty, as you said, is often treated as a development issue. So is this an insight from the field of international development that women are disproportionately affected by poverty, that poverty is a gendered phenomenon? Development has been at the forefront of uncovering and mapping how gender has impacted women's poverty and experiences poverty. And now it's really time for human rights law to catch up to those insights from development. So you're saying that a new interpretation of CEDAW would be the best way for human rights to incorporate poverty into women's rights issues. So what should that interpretation look like? The interpretation that I'm proposing is based on the insight that the state's obligations in CEDAW are based on equality. States have an obligation to achieve gender equality in political life, education, labor, healthcare. An interpretation of equality can, that connects to poverty can unlock the potential of the treaty to tackle gender-based poverty. The challenge is that equality is a highly contested concept, and it's almost to the point where no two, pe- no two people can quite agree what they mean when they use the word equality. And what makes CEDAW more complicated is in looking at the drafting history and looking at the way that the text uses the word equality, that CEDAW embraces a multifaceted and overlapping concept of equality. So it has within the text equality of opportunity, equality results, and transformative equality. And then all these different models can speak to different scenarios of gender-based poverty. So that richness can actually be quite a strength for recognizing so many different ways that gender and poverty interact to undermine women's right to be equal. And the different models can be used to address different factual circumstances. But what's important is that all the different understandings that are contained within that text can be used to tackle gender-based poverty. So I can just provide a few examples to illustrate what I'm trying to say is that if benefits, social um, housing benefits or social grants are put in one person's name or one person's bank account, that perpetuates women's economic dependence, women's inferiority. It doesn't provide women with any sort of economic autonomy. That obviously undermines their opportunities to be independent financial agents. It perpetuates traditional gender norms that women are inferior and dependent. All of those models of equality are deeply embedded in the text of Sita. Or we can think about how we might want to improve women's economic situation. So we'll create jobs within the caring, the caring market, so nursing or teaching. But then we have to look very carefully at what those working conditions are like attached to those jobs. They might be a job, but the working conditions are quite poor that no one's really broken any cycles of poverty or disadvantage. And then we might also want to think about how in creating caring jobs for women, are we just perpetuating that it's women's job to do caring, caring roles or caring jobs? And so we're not really radically transforming any gender relationships. So what effects would it have on the ground to interpret CEDAW to encompass women's poverty this way? When we talk about 
gender, poverty, and human rights law, there is a pink elephant or ghost in the room that states have long been resistant to this interpretation. They have long resisted thinking about poverty as a human rights issue with a fear that they will now have a legal obligation that they can't wiggle out of, they can't withdraw from, that essentially will be too costly and they'll be forced to have to spend billions of dollars to solve poverty. And my proposed interpretation of CEDAW doesn't necessarily require the states to eliminate women's poverty, but what it requires is that a state come to this international accountability body and demonstrate against an equality framework that they are taking all appropriate measures to fulfill the human rights of women in poverty. And an example might be helpful to walk through what I'm trying to cross. So poor women disproportionately die in childbirth. These deaths are easily preventable. We have the technology to prevent women from dying in childbirth. But states don't put women, women's maternal health as a priority issue. And there are tragic cases where women die and they've come to the CEDAW committee, or their, their relatives have come to the CEDAW committee, arguing that there has been a violation of CEDAW. And the CEDAW committee can assess, has the state allocated sufficient funding in commiserate to the magnitude or the needs of poor women who are in uh, need maternal health care. They can also investigate, well, has the state paid attention to how women in poverty access the health care system? What are the barriers in place to women who are pregnant accessing maternal health care? Is the cost of medical care too expensive? Are hospitals and medical services too far away from where these women live that they can't afford transport? The CEDAW committee can point out the links between the experiences of women and the state's sort of laws or policies on healthcare. It can also be an advocate for including women in poverty in the design of laws and policies. Say that you can't make a policy in maternal healthcare without talking to women in poverty to see what, what are their needs for how to safely give birth. How does a new interpretation of an international instrument like CEDAW get adopted? What is that process like? The encouraging news is that states are already kind of on board with this idea. When you look through all these state reports, so every four years a state has to submit a report to CEDAW saying, the CEDAW committee, saying, this is all the great things we've done for women's equality, and here's the areas we're still working on. They almost cons- consistently across the board report on the steps they're taking to address women's poverty. So they're already kind of understanding women's poverty as an gen- issue of gender equality. And what's really needed next is for the, the CEDAW committee to be a leader and bring the, that interpretation together in a general recommendation. Mm-hmm. And that is a statement, essentially, where the committee says, this is how we understand that treaty CEDAW to mean. This is how we interpret it. And that tends to act as a rallying cry or a focal point to shift state, individuals, grassroots, civil society, international organizations, their thinking on gender uh, and poverty. But general recommendations are not legally binding, right? That is correct. The general recommendation would not legally be binding, but there have there are successful track records in shifting uh legal and cultural thinking. CEDAW committee does act as that sort of global cultural focal point. The good example in the past is gender-based violence against women. For a long time, that's been conceptualized as individual failings, uh, matter of criminal law, 
the committee released part of me a general recommendation on gender-based violence back in the early 90s. And that has been picked up by civil society, by apex courts in countries all over the world, and sort of in an indirect way given legal effect. So there is a solid track record. There's reason to be hopeful that a general recommendation on gender-based poverty could have a similar positive influence in how countries all over the world think about women who live in poverty and their human rights. When you look at the text of the SDGs, do you see evidence that these goals have been informed by human rights priorities at all? There are quite a few positive links between the SDGs and human rights, and CEDAW specifically. They talk about many of the same substantive issues, gender equality empowerment, fair labor markets, uh, fair labor practices, sexual and reproductive health rights, education, political participation of women. So there are lots of positive overlaps and synergies. Some of the differences are where things get difficult is that obviously human rights cares about every individual. One, if one person, if one child, if one girl child doesn't get to go to school, that is a human rights violation. Where the SDGs often talk about things in larger statistical pictures and look at aggregates and how, how things, trend lines and where, how things are moving on a much larger scale, which obviously has lots of value for understanding trends and where things are going but it can sometimes drown out the voice of the individual and their own experience of a human rights violation, their own understanding of their place in the world, their relationship to um, their family, other individuals, the state. And human rights law cares very deeply about the, what every person's uh, lived reality is. Do you feel like the SDGs have opened up a window to talk about poverty in the field of human rights? Is this a particularly good moment to be having this conversation? difficult to say if it's an opportune moment as we're all only here for our one small slice of history. So it's hard to get that long view uh, if this is the moment in, say, a thousand years. But there is reasons to be hopeful, as I said earlier. There is a lot of attention to gender and poverty right now as the SGDs are very prominent in legal and political circles. Moving outside of you know academic ivory towers, there is a feeling that we can see in the news you know, every day that women's rights are under attack, that the gains that we have made are now vulnerable. And there's a feeling that, and maybe just a feeling, a personal feeling, that women are tired, they're exasperated, they're exhausted, that it's no longer okay to let these injustices and these wrongs stand. It's, it's time to draw the line in the sand and say it's no longer acceptable that billions of women live every day in poverty with grotesque human rights violations, that human rights law needs to step up and speak to the reality that these women live with and cope with every day. So how do we make sure that human rights and development goals align, or at least continue talking to one another? I can speak best to answer that question from the CEDAW perspective. Because of these overlapping aims and goals, and CEDAW has a multifaceted and reasonably sophisticated accountability process. Multiple platforms, different agents uh, who are involved, who try to hold governments to account for women's human rights. It could be quite useful or quite a powerful voice in holding states to account for the SGD commitments. Right now, it doesn't quite realize that promise. It gives a passing nod to the SGDs in its accountability processes, but doesn't quite call it to task uh, when it's 
looking at sexual reproductive health rights, it could easily say um, women's limited access to contraception is a violation of their right to health under Article 12 of CEDAW. It could also say it's also in violation of um, the SGDs. It could just reiterate, rather than just sort of saying a, a slight nod to the end of the SGDs, it could just try to merge them a bit more seamlessly to reinforce that both of these things are operating concurrently and give the SGDs a little bit more um, accountability. But for you, CEDAW is the most important mechanism for addressing women's poverty. CEDAW is the human rights instrument on women. It's one of the only instruments that exclusively focuses on women. It needs to speak to women's daily experiences. And unfortunately, that means speaking on women's poverty and the impact on women's poverty has on their enjoyment of human rights. Well, thank you very much, Megan, for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This special series on the Sustainable Development Goals is supported by the British Academy. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.